You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. So here's a question. Do you remember when, when we were all little, obviously living our lives and stuff, but do you remember that, that we really didn't like following rules? Yeah, I didn't like following rules. I thought the rules were boring. And, and my, my kids often tell me that the things that we get them to do, especially Nora, she's like, yeah, but that's boring. I don't want to do it. It's not exciting. And if we didn't have rules, if we didn't have to do them, things would be a lot more fun. But I remember one time in gym class when we were in elementary school, we tried under the teacher's instructions to play basketball with absolutely no rules. And it sounds like an awesome idea as they were saying it, but then within a minute, it was just like utter and complete chaos. I'm sure you can understand. People were crying because they wouldn't have the ball, they didn't have the ball, and others were insisting it was needed to be played in a certain way. And then the one kid that was faster than the rest of us had the ball and running around saying that he had won. Like, what the heck? (laughs) You know, usually, usually rules are, are a good thing. You know, driving laws and regulations keep us safe on the road as we travel. Uh, workplace safety regulations generally do a good job of keeping us safe when we are working, other than the scar on my face. Sports have to have, they, sports have to have rules so that the games can be played in a way that everybody knows what's going on. And there's no question, you know, there's always rules to keep everybody going in the same direction. Uh, if no one followed the rules of the road, we'd be in mortal danger every time we got behind the wheel of a car. Uh, not following safety regulations at work can result in things happening to us. In sports with no rules, I think that's just called rugby. You know, like, and, and think about other kinds of rules as well. I'm fairly positive that as we have grown up, uh, some of us have maybe grown up in, in churches most of our life, or maybe this is a relatively new thing to us. But we can be sure that there's, there's rules, maybe unspoken or spoken, at churches that we have attended. And it can be things like, you know, the order in which the service happens. And it needs to be. It needs to be a certain way. And if it isn't, God won't know what's going on. Like, it's that serious. Or, you know, style of the worship music that is played. Uh, you know, it could be organ, or it could be piano, or it could be guitar, or it could be full band. It could be a whole bunch of different things. The, the, the songs that we sing, hymns or choruses or anything like that, repeating a song 17 times for the whole service or singing a whole bunch of different songs. And then how do we as a congregation respond to worship? Is it better to stand there? And just be stoic in our worship? Or is it okay to raise your hands and to show emotion? That sort of thing. All these things, I would say, as I said, maybe not spoken, but they're kind of rules or, you know, things that kind of go on in in certain churches that, you know, some people insist on being followed and stuff. And, And what about attending the right church? You know, some people, not all, thankfully, but some people might think that if you don't go to a certain church or do not become a member of that church, it's a pretty serious thing to the point of not being saved, which I find kind of interesting to think about. 
I remember my parents talking about that when they were growing up. Uh, you know, I grew up in a kind of a conservative small town. Um, it was not proper for Christians to play pool, to play card games, or to go to movies. You know, for my grandpa, when he was younger, um, I guess the church elders gave him an ultimatum that he could either continue to play hockey, which he was fairly good at, or he could serve the church. But he could not do both, because it was against the rules. And I mention all these things, and I'm sure that you are thinking of other rules that perhaps that you've had, that you've had contact with in your own lives. And I find these things interesting uh, because a few things pop into my mind. Uh, probably number one, the, the people who made these rules perhaps had good motives in making them. Perhaps the context in which they were originally made was good, and, and it made sense in that context. They started out with a good purpose, and they had reasons why they wanted these rules to be followed. But number two, in spite of that, these rules became either tradition or unspoken law, and the context was lost. And number three, people started following these rules and elevated them to the point where if you didn't follow them, it was a serious stain on your relationship with God. And as I said, we need rules, right? I think we can all agree with that. We need things to for lack of better terms, put boundaries on our lives. And truly, there isn't anything wrong with having the same order of service throughout the years. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There isn't anything wrong with having a certain style of music that you tend to gravitate more to as we, as we worship at church, or choosing not to go to movies. That's probably a pretty good thing these days. But if we take them to the extreme... And we make them equal to having right faith and a right relationship with God. I say we have lost focus. As Blair and Greg have been talking about, as we go through this book of Galatians, the letter to the church in Galatia, these churches were living well. They had heard the gospel from Paul. But then some people came in and started preaching more rules. And these people called the Judaizers were adding to the gospel that Paul had preached. And so Paul wrote this letter to respond to that. One of the reasons that Paul is able to respond so well to this problem is that he was previously a a very stalwart Jewish scholar who followed the law of Moses fanatically. He knew the rules that these people were, were preaching. In Philippians 3, he recites his, his resume, basically, of his former life before Christ. And he says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He had his right standing with God buttoned up. There's nothing that he was doing wrong according to his former life. But then something happened. As, we, as some of us might know, he actually met his Messiah on the road to Damascus, and his life was totally changed. He quit following the law, and he started actually living for Christ's purposes. And so let's read the verses I want to I be teaching from today. And they're found in Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 19 to 21. <clears throat> and it says, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. 
I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that is in it. And we pray, Father, that as we, as we think about it this morning, as we, as we talk about it, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have for, have for us this morning. I pray that we would uh, listen, listen attentively, not just to me or not so much to me, but, Lord, to your spirit as you speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. And I want to start at the end of these verses today, because that's where my thought process went, and talk about the law and how it can't add or replace Christ's death. Because if we accept that Christ died for us, which is Paul's way of saying the whole gospel message, but, we, but at the same time, we also accept that we need to follow certain rules to be saved, then we are missing the point. More than that, we are actually saying that Christ died for no purpose. Philip Graham Ryken writes, Assume that there is another way to be justified. Just assume that, apart from the work of Christ. Suppose that there is some other procedure for getting right with God. Now, explain why Christ died on the cross. Obviously not to justify sinners, because that this is something that sinners must do for themselves. The cross is necessarily only if it has the power to bring sinners into a right relationship with God. The Judaizers were adding things that people needed to do to have faith in Christ. They were teaching that people needed to add something to the work that Jesus did on the cross, as if that wasn't enough. And Paul is saying that idea is absolutely ridiculous. How can something we do top up something that Christ did on the cross? It's absolutely impossible. And Reichen again states, in order for salvation to be by grace alone, through faith alone, it must come from Christ alone. Otherwise, Christ died for nothing. There's no amount of rules that we can follow that can ever change our relationship or our status with God. The definition of the word justification is this. The act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous or right with him through Jesus Christ. So, for us to be justified by faith alone it means that God has declared us righteous, not because we have done something acceptable or follow the right rules, but because Jesus did everything we need. With that in mind, now let's go back to verse 19, where Paul says that through the law, he has died to the law so that he might live for God. Now the first question is, how does a person die to the law? To be dead to something means it has absolutely no grip on you whatsoever. It has no control. It has no power over you. And so Paul is saying that the law does not control him anymore. Instead, 
He's living for Christ and Christ's purposes. But then, what does it mean that Paul died to the law through the law? What happens when people do not follow the law? And we're talking about, you know, the law of Moses, the, the law is set down in the Old Testament here. And it says, or they sin, right? When we don't follow the law, that means we're sinning. And as it says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we break the law and we sin, we are under the penalty or curse of death. Now the interesting thing is that the curse of the law has already been carried out, and the demand of death has already been satisfied in Christ's perfect sacrifice. Instead of death, we receive the gift of God, an eternal life, in or through Jesus Christ our Lord. Which is amazing. So, Jesus, who being perfect, and he didn't deserve to die under the law, but instead he took all of our sins upon himself and willingly died for us in our place. He was under the law, and as he took our sin, it was as if he had broken the law, so he received the wages for our sin. For Paul to say that he had died through the law is explained in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so Paul is saying that Christ was crucified for us, and more than that, we as Christians have been crucified with Christ. It's as if we were on the cross with Jesus. It's amazing. This magnificent thought is part of what it is called the union we have with Christ. And again, as Riken explains, the only way to get what Christ has to offer is to be united to him in faith, by faith. But once we get into Christ, then we get everything he has to offer, especially his righteousness. The doctrine of union with Christ explains why the Christian is dead to the law. We are united with Christ in his crucifixion. As far as God is concerned, we were really and truly nailed to the cross with Christ. And it was on the cross that the law carried out its death penalty against us. Therefore, as, the law, as far as the law is concerned, we are now dead. And there's nothing the law can do to improve our standing before God. We can live for, God, for Christ because we are dead to the law. Again, I say this is what justification is. It's a big word, but it simply means we are made righteous. We are made right with God before, before God because Christ died for us. We put our sin on the cross with Christ, and God, when he looks at us, sees nothing but the righteousness of Christ, of Jesus. And so this leaves us in a state that we are dead to the past law and alive in front of God because Christ is alive. So through the law, I have died to the law. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. At the end of verse 19, it says, So that I might live to God. And in the middle of verse 20, it says, But Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what is the next step? 
What's the next step after we have been justified, after we have died to the law and we've been made alive to Christ? What's the next step? If we believe and have accepted Christ's life as our own, and we are now living in faith in the Son of God, what does that new life look like? And the next step is another big word. Right behind justification is sanctification. Sanctification is the process in which something or someone becomes holy. This is something that we are commanded to do in the Bible, but at the same time we need to acknowledge that we can't do it by ourselves. And as I was thinking and preparing this sermon, um, there is a lot to say about sanctification and justification. And I, I honestly didn't, as I was looking at these three verses in Galatians, and then that kind of thought popped into my mind, I, I could be here for a long time <laughs> talking about these two terms. And so I, it, was, it was awesome for me to, to remind myself of all these things, and it was hard for me to try to, you know, pare down all the verses that I could find into something that I could communicate in like 15 minutes. So this is awesome. Justification leads to sanctification. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, in, Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Bringing holiness to completion, to be sanctified. In Romans 12 verse 2, Paul instructs the Roman church, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we are to cleanse ourselves and be transformed by renewing our minds. How do we do that? Because remember, if the way we are to be transformed comes from our own effort, this is back to following rules. That's what Paul is writing this letter against. And that doesn't work. We can't always follow rules. We can't perfectly follow rules for our entire life. And so sanctification, just like justification, needs to come from God. Then the actions that we are to do are a response to His leading and to the Holy Spirit working in our lives. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24, it says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so it's God who will sanctify us. And it's God who will be faithful to do it in our own lives. We are to be transformed into Christ's likeness. Through the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and minds, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We're supposed to work at it, but it is God who is actually working in us. That was from Philippians chapter 2. So what do we need to do? Again, there's just so much here, but what we need to do, as Paul says, and again, in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22, part of that verse is we need to pursue righteousness, faith, Love and peace. The pursuit of all these good things that God has given to us. We need to pray. 
And we need to continually ask God to change us and renew us. We need to listen. We need to listen to his voice and follow God's instructions. Transformation is what the Christ-like life is all about. First, we are transformed from death to life through Christ's death and resurrection. And that's justification, as I've said. And we are unified with Christ then. And so the first transformation is that we are made alive for God. And the second ongoing transformation is that new life in Christ. The Holy Spirit working in us to sanctify us and to make us holy through a lifetime of following God and of listening to Him and of being open to His Spirit. At the beginning of this sermon, I read about Paul's previous life before he met Christ. The fanatical life of following these rules. Um, I want to read that again and continue to read the verses that follow it. To, to continue to fully show Paul's full transformation. And so we go back to Philippians. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Then this is where it gets interesting. This is where he continues and talks about his transformation. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul knew that his right standing with God did not come from following rules or anything that he could do. It came from faith in God, a righteousness that depended on faith. All the rules that he had kept counted for nothing and were worthless when compared to, be, to knowing and being unified with Christ. And so I ask you, where does your standing with God come from? Does it come from the things that you do? From the rules that you have followed? Or does it come from what, grace, from what God has done? From God's grace and God's mercy? I don't want us to nullify or to cancel out the grace of God in our lives. I don't want us living in such a way that Christ's death becomes pointless or meaningless. And so when we take communion, we are remembering Christ's death. We're remembering Jesus' death on the cross. And so as we take these symbols of Christ's body and blood I want us to search ourselves for anything that we have convinced ourselves that we need to do in order to gain God's favor. We need to repent of those things and we need to put them to death. 
And we need to put our trust fully into Christ's sacrifice on the cross and trust that that is enough.